0: I'm Piers Ludlow. Um, I'm the person who knows least about Cuba at this end of the room, so I'm going to say as little as possible and then pass over to the real experts uh, rather than detaining you for too long. But I should perhaps say a word or two about the kind of thinking behind this event. Um, the Cold War Studies programme at the LSE has been around for a while now, and in a sense, it could not but mark something about the Cold War's most dangerous and most famous crisis. And the fact that a 50th anniversary was coming up, coming up, therefore, had to be marked. But equally, the Cold War Studies Centre at the LSE couldn't mark that crisis in a bog-standard fashion. Um, to do a standard... Approach to the Cuban Missile Crisis would really not have been the way we like to do things. And so the thinking behind today's panel is very much to look at this most famous but also most analysed of Cold War crises from a distinctive regionalist perspective. We're not going to look at it primarily from a Washington angle, or from a Moscow angle, although, of course, American and Soviet decision-making will be referred to and talked about. But the focus tonight is very much on the Cuban dimension and on the way in which the crisis was perceived from Havana and was seen in that regional perspective. Um, In order to take us or to give us this regional viewpoint, we have three extremely distinguished panellists and I'll briefly introduce each, then say one or two more sort of boring words of introduction, and then hand over quickly to them. Um, the three speakers are, and I'm, are you, uh, so we, we've decided, I think, on the, the order, but uh, our professor, Tony Capture, from the uh, University of Nottingham. Um, he's somebody who's written extensively about the, about the Cuban Revolution and about other aspects of Cuba and Latin America more generally. Then speaking, uh, and you are going to speak first, or? Mm -hmm, Yeah, okay. Uh, Then um, speaking second, we have uh, Professor Klepak from the Royal Military College of Canada, who has also written extensively on this subject, recently uh, published a book on Raul Castro, but also earlier on the Cuban military. Uh, so again, it is going to bring a real expertise, particularly with a military focus, on this uh, on this crisis. And then, speaking third, uh, and joining us from Havana, uh, <laughs> Professor Alzugaray, um, who again has written extensively on this topic. Uh, he tells me that that a long last a version of a published version of his PhD, which was on Eisenhower's policy towards Cuba, is going to come out. Uh, and so all three are able to give us, I hope, a very detailed and very in-depth look of this at this crisis from a Cuban perspective. So those are the three speakers. Before I hand over to them, though, I do have to say a couple of sort of uh, housekeeping things. First of all, I don't pretend I understand this at all, but apparently if you are into Twitter or on Twitter, or I don't even know the terminology, uh, the hashtag is there... Uh, hashtag LSE missile crisis. I hope this doesn't mean there's a missile crisis going on here, Uh, but if you want to send your comments that way, uh, please do. And then I'm also uh, under strict instructions to uh, note our thanks and appreciation to the Institute for the Study of the Americas, uh, with whom we organized this event and uh, who are uh, uh, helping to support it. So uh, there, there are people from there here, and um, hopefully, they will join into the discussion. But anyway, that's quite enough of me. Uh, so I will straight away uh, move away from the lectern and hand over to others who know what they're really talking about. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Okay. How do I call that PowerPoint? Any particular. Um, OK. Um, instructions. OK. Perfect. Oh, oh, good. Right. Thank you. That's easy. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> right. OK. Well, when we're looking at um, the whole missile crisis from the Cuban perspective, the unseen, the unwritten participant in the whole thing, we have certain expectations in a way, not least because the way it was presented at the time is the way we still find it presented occasionally, which is Cuba, Fidel, as the pawn, willing or unwilling in a superpower uh, struggle, and the least influential player. Um, And sometimes we see it as a Soviet satellite... ...because why else would you accept weapons? Sometimes it's just simply, well, the poor victim... ...who really didn't know what was going on much of the time. Not far from the truth in some respects. What I'm going to look at, though, is to see how actually that isn't necessarily that simple. Of course, nothing in Cuba ever is that simple. But also because what we, look at, what we find when we look at it, is that Cuba was, yes, the least influential in a way... ...but far from a slavish follower of the Soviet line... ...far from a slavish follower of communism, indeed... Um, and actually Cuba got quite a lot out of the missile crisis, much more than one might have expected, politically certainly, and that the Cuban reaction, the Cuban behaviour actually showed a far from slavish following. It really was quite a very different line that was being taken by Cuba. Not least of course because the Cubans themselves didn't think for one minute that they were bit part players they knew they were the front line and that was the way it was presented at the time that's the way it was seen. Now I'm going to Start by saying, to understand what's going on here, we we have to remember the position of Cuba in that superpower conflict, at the crux of that conflict. And it comes from two strands, parallel strands. One is pragmatic, quite simply pragmatic. One, Cuba had to sell its sugar. Sugar economy, the world sugar economy at the time, was overproducing. All sugar producers had to have one major Market A guaranteed preferential market, Cuba had just lost their market in the United States. There was actually only one other large market available, which was the Soviet Union and therefore, there was a certain logic to that, quite apart from ideology. The other thing, of course, pragmatically, was given the Bay of pigs invasion, the certainty that there would possibly be sorry certainly there would possibly be the probability there might be another invasion or at least some continuing hostility they needed protection once again it made sense. So never mind ideology, the relationship with the Soviet Union made sense on two grounds. That's the pragmatic strand. There's also the ideological strand, and that's not quite the way we actually see it, because although it looks fairly obvious that by 1962 Cuba was in the Soviet camp, actually it's not quite that clear. Because if we look at, there's one way of looking at the whole development up to 1962, which is a growing Sovietization. For example, In 1958, before the revolution, the PSP, Communist Party, as it was known, joined the Rebel Alliance very late in the day and was one of three groups, so it was part of the Rebel Alliance in 59. In February 1960, there's the Soviet uh, sugar deal, which obviously starts the ball rolling economically and starts other contacts as well, very significantly. In 1961, the PSP is part of that three-party, that three-group party that 3 group Um, Unity Front which is put together and then famously uh, 16th of April, the day before the evening before the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion, Fidel makes the first reference to the revolution being socialist and he follows it up later on with a reference to him being Marxist-Leninist you can see how it's happening, by a certain point it looks fairly clear, there is a very close ideological as well as pragmatic relationship but, the but is there are other sides to this. One of those is sorry, one of those is that I mentioned the declaration of socialism, which is the way it's always defined. Actually, it wasn't a declaration, it was a passing reference. It's always described as the declaration of the Soviet of the socialist character. It wasn't. What it was was a little reference that Fidel made in the speech condemning the American bombing before the Bay of Pigs, saying what they can't forgive is that we're doing a, making a socialist revolution right under their noses. And that was it. That was the reference. And the, nothing else in the speech. His speech the next day made no mention of socialism whatsoever. It was all the usual references to revolution, patria, and so on. That's what happened. So it looked much more, it seemed afterwards more significant than in a way it was. And the other side of it actually is that when he said this is a socialist revolution, no one batted an eyelid. Cubans mostly accepted it, because they knew that's what was happening. They knew it was going that way. That was the momentum of the changes since 1959. But also something else, that actually was the tenor of much of the politics of Cuba from the 1930s. Most of the major parties are, that dominated politics, including Batista's party, Batista's coalition with the communists in the 30s and 40s was called the Democratic Socialist Coalition. They called themselves socialist. It didn't seem a problem at the time. So there was when he said it's a socialist revolution unremarkable in a way the key thing is what they meant by socialism and of course what was meant in 1962 by 1962 was a very peculiar mix of radicalism nationalism socialism yes anti-imperialism it was gradually evolving in a particular way. Well we'll see the differences as we look at the, uh, the evidence I'm going to come up with but there's another side to it as well which is that the relationship between the PSP and the 26th of July movement, the rebel movement, actually was far from comfortable, far from comfortable at all. There was animosity between the two. For example, I mentioned that the PSP, the communists, had joined an alliance with Batista. It was the good Batista. It was Batista when he was popular and reformist. But nonetheless, it was Batista, and some people never forgave them for that. Also in 1953 when the rebellion started and in 1956 when the the Sierra Rebellion started on both occasions the Communist Party rejected, publicly condemned it as butchism and adventurism. In other words it was not clearly what they wanted. There were also, I think, generational differences, very clear generational differences. I even suggest there might even have been religious differences. That's to say there were many people who were attracted to the rebel movement through Catholic action groups, and so there were patterns there of thinking as well. An uncomfortable relationship, most uncomfortable of all in 1962. Notice the date, March 1962, eve of the Missile Crisis in a way, came the famous affair, the Escalante affair, when Escalante, who was one of the principal leaders of the PSP, had been given the job of putting together the three groups as that unity front and had used the opportunity to to appoint too many PSP members into the directorate. There were other sins as well, but the point was he was publicly criticised, publicly. He was accused of sectarianism, removed from his post, and the PSP was downgraded. And The way I would put it was put on probation. ...put on probation. It was clear in March 1962 that the revolution belonged to the 26th of July movement... ...to the ideology that they believed in, rather than something that Escalante might have believed in. That's the background. So, on the eve of the missile crisis, Cuba wasn't slavishly following the Soviet Union... ...or even a communist line. Far from it. It was a very, very conditional um, approach... Now, the way I'm going to look at this to see the pattern that emerged is I looked at the newspapers of the period in Cuba to see how they compared, how they prepared and and covered the crisis. Now, I say the newspapers. There were only two that were really worth talking about. One was Revolución, which was the newspaper of the 26th of July movement, the rebel newspaper. It was created in the Sierra, and it maintained that line throughout. The other one, the daily newspaper, was Hoy, Noticias de Hoy, which was the PSP's newspaper, they kept their newspaper, and the two of them ran separately right up to 1965 when they finally merged. So that we've got two newspapers presenting two different versions of all the events, and that's a rich scene. You can imagine all the differences that emerge there. And that's what I'm going to do, is principally look at Revolución, but to some extent compare it to Hoy as well, to see what it actually tells us. Okay, now what I'm going to do beyond that, therefore, is to say is to... um, Just get this straight. Oh, that's right, yeah. Is to look at the the pattern that emerges. Because what's clearly happened in 1962 is the PSP is not as important as it was and as it wanted to be. There's clearly a pattern there. It wasn't rosy, and now we'll start looking to see what actually happened. Now, if I looked at the Revolución on the background, the build up to the missile crisis. As you would expect, there's almost no mention of problems, of major problems, no mention of a crisis, even as late as the 15th, 16th, 17th of October. There are problems, enormous problems, but it's interesting that the focus is mostly on what the Cubans referred to as a bloqueo. Now, when the Cubans referred to bloqueo, blockade, they mean the embargo. And the embargo was being actively, very actively pursued by the American Navy. They were worried about the harassment by American naval ships of Shipping coming in, into, to and from Cuba. And for them, for the Cuban line and the Revolución line was that it was a, an offence against sovereignty. That's what it was saying. It was not allowing Cuba to trade with who they want. That's how it's presented. So the bloqueo appears a lot in the newspaper, and that's principally what it's about. But there's one other interesting thing as well. That during this period, Ben Bella, the uh, president of Algeria, with whom they had a very close relationship, visited Cuba. The presentation of Ben Bella is interesting. The Algerian Revolution and the Cuban Revolution are seen by Revolución as close, as two revolutions, two anti-colonial revolutions. They see them as parallel, as twins. That's how it's presented at the time, which I think is really quite interesting, not least the way that um, is presented subsequently. And so if you follow the the whole period, the uh, two or three days around 15th, 16th, 17th, what you find is the whole tenor of Revolución is in the normal tone you would expect. It's all about revolution, patria, nation, not a mention in three or four days of socialism, not a mention at all of that. It's not that they're not socialist, it's that it almost is, we continue to refer to the revolution in the way we always have. That's what's going on here. So there's no real mention of it. I found one hint. That's the only hint I found. Is one cartoon with a hammer and sickle. It's the only hint I could find. Nothing else could, I had to look high and low for mention of socialism, I couldn't find the S word anywhere, let alone the C word at all. And so really that's really quite interesting, I think. There's a focus, as I said, throughout on the USA harassing, there's a focus on patria, revolucion, when Fidel gives a speech, a long speech, of course it's Fidel, he finishes it, not with long live socialism, but patria, revolucion, nacion, that's the way it finishes, and that's the way you'd expect. You don't get a hint of anything Until the 19th, and that's when you get the first mention, Radio Moscow report, that there are naval maneuvers, 20,000 American troops being mobilized, but it's presented in the terms of the embargo. They're reinforcing the embargo, they're actively acting on the embargo. By this stage, of course, we know that something else was going on. One assumes the Cuban government knew as well, but Revolución presents it as a continuation of the old problem and so the interesting thing there is it's, it's the same way, nothing's changed, nothing fundamentally has changed there, except revolution keeps being mentioned that's the way it's referred to all the time there's also another point that two days later it's the second anniversary of the Unified Youth Movement the Rebel Movement, the Rebel Youth and the Communist Youth joined together two years earlier to produce an organisation called the UJC the UJC, which is the Union of Communist Youth, so the C's for communist. That's the only hint in the whole article about that of communism. It doesn't mention the word socialism at all, so it's quite clear that something slightly different from what you expect is being presented. So nothing particularly unusual about that in a way. What we find is that the next thing, on the, um, uh, 20 se- sorry, the 22nd of October, suddenly we've got something happening. We don't quite know what it is. Aggression yankee, aggression coming. And you can see, unexpected return of Kennedy to Washington. And the whole tenor of this is, there's something going on here. We don't know what it is, but there's something going on. There are manoeuvres, there are things happening, but we don't quite know what it is. And that, incidentally, is that as a meaningless uh, slide. I'm sorry about that. But if you had time to look at it, you'd be see, see that there are reports of meetings, there are reports of movements. We don't quite know what's going on. Acting dumb, maybe, but actually remember what we know about the whole crisis is that the Cubans actually, of the three participants, did know least about what was going on. So in a way, it's not quite inaccurate. Now, finally what happens is, it it all hell breaks loose, um, eventually on the the key date, when suddenly the nation on a war footing. Notice the word, la nación. It's not Anything else, it's just the nation. The nation is on a war footing. And Fidel Castro the, has organized overnight the uh, mobilization, the mass mobilization. Now, in fact, the newspaper didn't need to say that. This is Cuba. Everybody knew there had been a mass mobilization the night before because everybody had somebody in the army, the militia, the reserve, CDRs. Mass mobilization was common knowledge by then. So you had to then start saying what it's about. And I think the interesting thing, of course, about that is that in that particular day this is the get the date right the 23rd the 23rd of October that newspaper is really interesting because in it Kennedy's speech is given verbatim no comment verbatim his speech on television is given verbatim no comment whatsoever so cubans knew what it was about they knew about soviet missiles then there was no particular any, uh, desire to hide anything the next day there's a notion of a feeling of defiance We don't know any more about what's going on from the newspaper, but there's defiance. And the interesting thing is the emphasis in in Revolución is all about sovereignty. This is us. We have the right to protect ourselves. They are the aggressors. It's presented as defiance, as sovereignty, as patria. And there is a whole three-page account of Fidel's speech on television when he refuses an inspection. That's the key point. He refuses the inspection, and his line is really interesting – Cuba's not the Congo. Namely, we will not sit by and allow people to come and inspect us. We will stand up and defend our right, our territory, Sees it as a defensive territory. And so the point is coming across very clearly that Cuba is taking a moral high ground. This is us defending our sovereignty, and morality comes into it in a very, very big way. And there's something else going on here as well. There's a button being pressed. Cubans who learn history in school don't need to be told that in 1898... What happened was the Cubans, having forced the Spanish to a standstill in their war of independence, then had their future determined for them by the United States and Spain in Paris. The Treaty of Paris had no Cuban participation whatsoever, no Cuban participation in the surrender ceremony. Everybody knew that. You didn't need to say it. And that is often what's being referred to here. There's something going on, someone's deciding our future, and it's not us, quite clearly. So there's a historical reference there which is really going to be quite significant. So what eventually happens is, yeah, is the resistance comes there. The bloqueo blockade, blockade is interesting. We've now come to blockade, right? Bloqueo is blockade, but it's remember means embargo. Now it's segued nicely into blockade as well. It's part of the same problem. They're all the same problem. That's how it's presented. We will resist it, we will reject it, And what he says is, we will reject inspection, quite clearly, because again, it's our sovereignty that we're protecting. And notice what comes out. Notice that one, Patria Muerte. That's really interesting. It's a slogan which is borrowed very largely from the 19th century struggles against Spain, and it's a reference, it's the common slogan since 1959, but it's a reference to the Cuban national anthem, Morir por la patria es vivir. There's a line in it which says, to die for the homeland is to live. So... Patria Muerte is simply taking that nationalist element and reinforcing it. That's going to be quite significant. Okay, later on what happens is the Soviet Union says, yes, we will protect you. There's not a problem there. Although it's still very, very much Cuba as the, moral, as the morally affected one. Suddenly, once Khrushchev has stopped the ships, we don't yet know it's over, we get normality. This is work details, work New work laws, as though nothing's happened. Suddenly, it's just like a normal day. Actually, concerts are going on, there's a whole cultural pages, it's just like a normal day. There's nothing particular there. Until the next day, and there's one other interesting thing here. This is the Federation of Cuban Women, normal blood donations, except what you have to do in the case of air attack. There's something, in other words, they're still preparing. By this stage, it's all been settled. By this stage, actually, it's over. There's no need for this, but nonetheless there's an alert going on. Why? Because of course Cuba is now in the position of having their fate decided for them and therefore let's build up the sense of alert. And what's referred to here very frequently is the Bay of Pigs because we've seen it before, we know what's going to happen, we know what can still happen, therefore we have to still be alert. So what comes out very clearly is now, viva Cuba, we emerge victorious. They did not invade, we were the ones who emerged victorious and... Two nationalist heroes of the 19th century... ...put up there very clearly... ...people in arms, that's what's coming out... ...it's the message is we did it, we did it... ...the Soviet Union didn't, we did... ...and then what is really interesting... ...is at one stage five points come up... ...because the previous day Fidel... ...has publicly criticised the agreement... ...and said it's not enough to remove the blockade... ...you have to remove the embargo... ...you have to stop uh, supporting attacks against Cuba... ...you have to stop violations of our sovereignty... Criticism of the United States, but a criticism of the Soviet Union as well, because they didn't push for that. In other words, this is Fidel's five points, and these remain the five points, we have been let down by the Soviet Union, very, very clearly. Um, Anyway, uh, what I'll come to very quickly is one other point where they've said inspection, which is, oi, this is the communist newspaper, I'll finish with a couple of slides there. They follow a line, communist newspaper is wonderful, I have to say, If you like the discourse of communist newspapers of the 50s and 60s, you'll love Oi. They come out with the glorious and unconquerable Soviet Union, just as madly as you'd expect. And there's one lovely slogan. When they get the mood, which is, now is the time for defense and more production. (laughs) Doesn't trip off the tongue. But they finally get the message. Finally, finally, once it's all over, they get the message. They quote Fidel. And then this is the communist newspaper, Patria o Muerte. They've never come out with that slogan before. Finally, having said the Soviet Union will protect us, the Soviet Union will protect us, and it doesn't. They finally get the message, and suddenly it's Patria o Muerte, and it's Fidel... And it's fidel, it's deaf to the invader. This could be a line from, Re- from Revolución. It really could. They finally got the message. In other words, they're confirmed in second place. They're following now the final route. Now, the point about this, to finish on, is it's quite clear that what happened with all this is that the Oi Revolución disagreement is actually reflecting the PSP-Cuban disagreement, which is in turn reflecting the Cuban, sorry, the... Uh, 26th of July, is reflecting Cuban-Soviet disagreement. What comes out of it is the Cubans know three things. One, they're on their own, quite clearly, and from that point onwards they act as though they're on their own, in Latin America not least. Secondly, they know that actually whatever happens, one way or another, they can take advantage of this. They can take advantage of the PSP's embarrassment and the Soviet Union's embarrassment. And finally, of course, they know they're not going to be invaded. Therefore, they have a new freedom as a result of all this. They present it differently, but that's what emerges from that. That's the point. Okay? Thank you.
2: I'm going to have a map in a, in a moment appearing. Should I just press there in order to get that? Cuba. What a surprise. Just that I was mentioning to my colleagues on the, on the head table tonight that uh, the, last time, the first and last time I used a PowerPoint, like, the criticism I was receiving from everyone was that there was a lot more power than point. So I'm, I'm avoiding it uh, tonight. Um, I prepared something on on the Cuban missile crisis, on the military aspects of it, which are often not spoken about a great deal. Um, Not the Soviet or United States ones, which are spoken a great deal about, but um, the Cuban experience, and I think, I hope it'll follow on uh, Professor Capsia's uh, remarks uh, fairly directly. I'd like to talk a bit about preparation, I'd like to talk a bit about conduct, and in the context of regional uh, impact, a bit about uh, the impact. Um, When Fidel takes power in January of 59, the only discussions we know anything about are, he said, well, Cuba's always had an army for one reason, to hold down the people. The people are with me. I don't need 60,000 troops and a huge police. I could do with perhaps 16,000 because we have the odd problem with the Dominican Republic or something like that, but nothing any bigger. But as the agrarian reform of April, May, June of that year start to really bite and in a country like Cuba, bite the United States, which has amazingly large holdings on the island, agricultural as well as industrial, um, the combination of a domestic upper-class um, uh, opposition and the United States opposition becomes more and more clear, and the need for a real armed force becomes more and more clear in the face of this this, uh, combination of external and and internal uh, disagreement with the governments, where the government was going. There's only one problem. There's no money and there are no weapons. Somewhat difficult combination if you intend to build uh, a larger uh, army. And so since um, it's going to be very difficult to get arms initially, one turns in the same sequence as the sugar issue already referred to to the Soviet Union, or at least to Czechoslovakia initially, and then to the Soviet Union. And uh, in terms of money, the decision is taken. This cannot be a regular force. Cuba cannot, with six million people, have a very large army which will deter the United States. It's got to have a large militia, which is unpaid, uh, in order to defend uh, the country against uh, the United States. This ab- brings about something, ladies and gentlemen, which is absolutely constant in Cuban policy subsequently. The reasoning that Fidel and Raul Castro, his defense minister by then, used is one that any Latin American will understand, and most people who work in military issues. And it's a bit referred to, I had four years with the British Army when I was younger, about 100 years ago. And at that time, I remember an expression that was used here was Randy Rudolph in the rear rank with the rusty rifle. That's supposed to be the average chap in the ranks. Now, what had been happening in Latin America in the dozens of interventions previous to 1961 was that the United States was saying, what is that chap in the second rank there actually doing there in the Panamanian army, in the Mexican army, in the Honduran army, the Haitian army. He's scared, number one, trying to defend his country against our invasion. He knows we're a lot more powerful than he is, than his country is. And so he's already a bit nervous. If we can come with such overwhelming strength, the Pentagon's view was, that he sees that no matter what he does today, even if he dies for his country, it will affect absolutely nothing of the result. The result is a foregone conclusion the United States will, as always before 1961, win. And therefore, my sacrifice as Randy Rudolph in the rear rank will be automatically of no value at all. And that has worked across the board. So Fidel and Raul say, well, just a minute, there's a way around that. What if Randy Rudolph thinks it might matter that he fights back? that he stands and, and continues to struggle in that trench. Not that you're going to defeat the United States, but that you might get something that we've all learned about. The game may not be worth the candle. That is to say, it may be possible not to win a war against the United States, But by building a sufficient force, it might be possible to make the United States think at least twice, perhaps thrice, about an invasion because this is not going to be Nicaragua, Haiti, Dominican Republic, Honduras, or even Mexico if they come. And at that stage, that view uh, that will make the game not worth the candle is already adopted by September of 1960, and Raul Castro makes a famous speech about that as minister. We will build a force sufficiently strong Based on the militia, because there's no other option, and based on Soviet assistance, because there's no other option, the United States and its allies will not sell us weapons that will make us respected. Well, the result is the Milicias Nacionales Revolucionarias, the MNR, which will come to have hundreds of thousands of people. Remember, we're talking about a population of just over 6 million. And a regular army, which will be considerably increased as well. But particularly, we'll be having growing Soviet aid. The Soviet Union, for, for the first two years, at very low cost, and subsequently gives Cuba masses of arms, masses of training. Perhaps that's even more important at some stages, and uh, does so for free. And uh, sorry, does so at very, very little cost. And then, after that, for, after those two years, it all comes free. The Americans perhaps make a mistake, although it's perfectly understandable, uh, because, of course, by immediately going in to a uh, funding anti-government. Forces on the island, it is in fact giving the mass army now—not the little army that fought in the, in the uh, Sierra, down in the east, and near Bayamo and Santiago in Sierra Maestra—that force, which was perhaps 3,000 at its heavier at its biggest moment, at the victory of the war, of the first war, <laughs> that is, the war for, for uh, that Fidel takes Fidel into power. That army is now being replaced by something many, many times greater. The Cubans are forced to have a lucha contra bandidos, as they call it, uh, uh, to reorganize their militia force as permanent people in order to fight in a specialist fashion against these rebels in the mountains, in particular in the mountains. And it's also, of course, as was already referred to in April of 1961, it's uh, obliged to face a real invasion, a small invasion, But a real invasion, initially to be backed massively by the United States, and eventually to be backed very little indeed by the United States uh, at that time. But in any case, it gives particularly the reserve forces real battle experience and prepares the army in a way that it would never have been prepared otherwise for what was coming. Cuba then produces a mass army which. Uh, and Navy and Air Force, by the way, uh, which is respectable certainly by Latin American terms, in Latin American terms already. Of course, briefly, and I think uh, Tony already referred to it, there is a f- moment in the summer of, or the summer to f- early autumn of 1962, in which there's actually an alliance. The Soviet Union says it will protect. Cuba, Despite the dangers of nuclear deterrence turning into something quite different, the uh, Soviet Union will stand by Cuba and will even supposedly as a help uh, deploy uh, immediate, uh, medium range uh, missiles onto the island. That's a bit about intro. How does this all work? Well, it works in exceptional fashion, and I think Professor Capsia was already making it sound pretty exceptional. On the 22nd of October, Uh, the alert is given by two stages, the second most important uh, stage is at 5.40 in the afternoon where Fidel, as has been mentioned, calls the nation to arms. This is again uh, no surprise to anyone. Everyone knows it's coming. They call us to the nation, but of course it's the armed forces and the militia that have to respond, but also the local control Committees known as the CDRs, Comites de Defensa de la Revolución, which go into action, as they had at the Bay of Pigs, with great effect in silencing whatever opposition there might be to mobilization. And the figures are almost World War I-ish Europe, in the sense that 269,000 men are, are mobilized at that time. A good many women as well. 269,000 in a rural, largely rural, society of 6 million. Really something which, in one day, it takes 14,000 trucks to move these people to their battle positions. Cuba only, the Cuban armed forces only have 4,000 trucks. So that it requires the mobilization of the nation, to which Professor Capsio already made reference, in order to get anything done. And it is done. It is deployed particularly in the areas of, uh, of the um, missile deployments near San Cristobal in the west and also between Bayamo and Puerto Padre in a couple of occasions there in the east. Those are defended, it's worth remembering, by Cuban armed forces. It's true that the, Cub- that the Soviets deploy between 45 and 54,000 People were not sure exactly how many were deployed on the 22nd of October, a significant force, but it's for the quarter of a million Cubans that the main responsibility for defense uh, goes. Those forces are 99,000 regulars. Remember, only a year and a half before, the intention was to have a force less than a sixth of that. The organizational requirements for a country flat on its back with its treasury gone with the the former dictator and with no military experience whatsoever in organizing anything like a mobilization, nor does anyone else in Latin America really have it, but certainly the Cubans had not had it at any time before. They then remain on alert because of the inspection issue that has been referred to before. Long after the crisis is is, uh, supposedly um, uh, diffused in the North and in in the Soviet Union, the Cubans remain deployed in their battle positions for one month exactly until the 22nd of November. Well, they remain sustained in all that time by an economy not accustomed to losing that much of its workforce. They remain disciplined. There are no cases of serious indiscipline, despite the fact these are all civilians, or mostly civilians, and deployed. And morale is extremely high, in the defiant mood that Professor Capsia has already referred to. They are very defiant, and they are very disappointed when it all goes wrong. Well, the impact. The impact is, of course, again, abandonment. Cuba will do this alone. It will deter the United States now with its own forces there is no alliance with the soviet union it was always a sham and now we will do patria o muerte we will deter the americans and make the game not worth the candle by ourselves we will still depend on the soviet union for weapons because we will expand the militia to between 600 and 800,000 personnel extraordinary for that that's that's military uh, mobilization as I say at World War I uh, levels. This will require a larger militia but also a much larger regular force. It will require a professional force. It doesn't do all the revolutionary taskings except national defense and that will within three years require a process of Sovietization. In the years following 1968 and the, and the handling of the Soviet uh, invasion of Czechoslovakia and very favorable formed by, by Cuba, uh, there is a Sovietization of the armed forces in Cuba, which is really extraordinary, in order to make them professional, to be able to deter alone. Given that we can't deter with the Soviet Union by our side, we cannot have a makeshift, ragtag armed forces that the United States doesn't respect, or deterrence goes by the wayside. And the extraordinary decision for a country with no conscription tradition, they go to three years national service for young men which is more than the Soviet Union had, Uh, again, uh, World War I uh, levels. And, of course, on foreign policy, the export of revolution to to which reference is already made becomes much more serious. If it's going to be that the organization of American states, the United States and rightist governments across the region are going to work towards the destruction of the Cuban Revolution, part of its defense policy, active defense as it's called by Raul and by Che at the time. Its active defense must include, as in the Iranian case more recently, but the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution and most revolutions as well, it must include some element of trying to unseat the governments which are trying to unseat us. And so the export of revolution for the next five years becomes much more uh, pushed and much more serious an occupation for the Cuban armed forces uh, themselves. The United States, of course, launches, and I'll finish with that, uh, further destabilization immediately An Operation Mongoose, having failed uh, uh, in previous attempts, and that results in a three-year, what Raul himself has called second civil war in Cuba, where for three years Cuba fights rather hard in order to get rest control of some of the more uh, isolated parts of the country from bandits who are as they're called bandits by the, by the Cuban government, of course. Everybody's called to get bandit if you disagree with them. Um, this uh, forced is very serious at various times, very well paid, very well sustained by uh, the Pentagon and the CIA, and has to uh, require, and requires rather, a significant mobilization from Cuba. This is going to, of course, this export of revolution is going to bring the Americans to understand that they have to get better at counterinsurgency, and then, of course, you're going to have Che's death as a direct result of that. They get very good at counterinsurgency, and Cuba is, of course, defeated as that. But that would be another subject for another day. Thank you very much
3: well good afternoon everyone uh, I'm surely are very very happy to be here and I was Thank the LSE uh, Cold War ideas. I don't know how the, the words fit now, but I know it was part of your, of your creation, Professor Westad. Um, Professor Ludlow and, and his assistants, uh, Nuala and Luke, have done everything for, for me to come from very far away. I come from Cuba. And uh, it, it, it takes a long time, and, and, and sometimes it's difficult. Uh, and, of course, I, I, I thank Professor Westad. Early this afternoon, I came here, and uh, I wanted to find out the venue, the place, etc., trying to do uh, a little bit of exploration of, of, I had been here many years ago. Uh, in 1999, I had a meeting here with Professor Fred Halliday, recently deceased. We were preparing a trip of uh, Professor Halliday to Cuba to give a group of lectures at the Institute for International Relations in Havana. And, of course, Fred, uh, we we certainly uh, are very sorry that he passed away, but he was probably one of the most important international scholars uh, in in, in the world during his time, and and it's really a big loss. But I made a mistake of of going into the the bookshop. Whenever I make that mistake, it's terrible. I always end up, even even in in the times of Kindle, I still buy Uh, printed books. And of course you find out that most of the important books are not necessarily in Kindle. You have to have the actual actual book. And I came across your book, Reviewing the Cold War. And it's very interesting because you mentioned in the introduction of the book that one of the objectives of the book is trying to make, especially students, but PhD candidates, etc., to know how to study the Cold War, well, you haven't preaching. You haven't been preaching in the desert. Look at the room; it's full of people who I think are interested in taking a look at a, probably the most, uh, at least the most threatening Cold War event of the history of the Cold War. So, congratulations, Professor West for your effort. Um, I want to st- I want to um, put the missile context in the in the in the in the perspective of Cuba. My friends, Tony and Hal, whom I have known for many years and love what they write, and they probably are uh, the best uh, foreigners who, among the best foreigners who study Cuba, have done a good job. But there is always a new perspective, and that's what I am trying to do. Um, Now, what I am trying to, what I will try to do today is try to put that perspective from a Cuban point of view, and especially from the point of view of the principles and interest of Cuban foreign policy as defined, as defined by the Cuban leadership at the time. And by the way, uh, it helped me very much, Professor Capcha, to watch all these very old uh, um, uh, clippings from the press because I lived very strongly during those days. During those days, I was a militiaman. As every, I was 19 years old. And as every Cuban of that age, I was three things at the same time. I was a student at Havana University finishing my degree in political science. I was, I was working at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs where our ambassador, Esther Menteros, has been also working for a long time and we have been friends for a long time. And I, and I was a militiaman. I was a militiaman. And during the day, we dig trenches to defend Havana. And during the evenings, we uh, went to work to the foreign ministry and did a lot of reporting and that kind of thing that you do in the foreign ministry. I remember because, believe it or not, at the tender age of 19, I was the analyst on American U.S. military affairs in the Department of North America. (laughs) (laughs) And I was very lucky because the Library of Congress kept a program of sending to Cuba all the publications of the uh, US government. And I was able to go to the library, to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs library, and I said to the girls there, give me all the books from the Department of Defense. I need them. So I took all the books to the department, to my my office, and I had been reading a a book about the nuclear war. So the night between the 26th and the 27th of October, Somebody when we had finished digging trenches, somebody asked me, Carlos, you have been reading that book on nuclear war. What happens if they attack us tonight? And I said, Well, that's very easy. We are going to see a big flash, we're going to feel a lot of heat, and then we will be dead. And with that very optimistic feeling, we went to sleep. In the floor. In the floor. That's 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 the way we lived. And and I was explaining the other day at the Institute for the Study of America at the University of London where they invited me to, to give a lecture, that the feeling that we had is we want to get this thing over with. We cannot resist one more mobilization. That's one of the reasons why we call it the, in Cuba we call it the October crisis because there was the April crisis, the June crisis. So there was the October crisis. For all, it was not about the missiles. It was that we had a crisis every two or three months and we had to mobilize because we were expecting an American invasion. And here is the point where um, what I want to um, put the emphasis on. Uh, According to the realist theory of international relations, the strong do what they want and the weak do what they must. That's to see this on the Peloponnesian War. By the way, uh, Professor Wester's book on the global Cold War has demonstrated that somebody weak get away with things. And that's exactly what Cuba was trying to do. <coughs> One of the things that has never been sufficiently, I think, understood on underlined, and, 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 and Professors Capcha and Klepak have done a great job today, is to understand the logic of what Fidel uh, and the Cuban leadership were thinking about. If you take the first statements of Fidel in January 1959, he said... He said in a very memorable speech, this is not going to be 1898 again. The Americans are not going to come and occupy the country again. And several times he mentioned it. Of course, remember, Fidel Castro was at the time 33 years old, a very young man, uh, full of enthusiasm. And I remember once he said, if they invade us, half a million Marines are going to be killed in Cuba. Was, was he threatening No, he was just saying something that has been a permanent basic principle of Cuban national security strategy. Don't mess with us because the threat, the the danger, it's, it's going to be very costly for you. What he was trying to do all the time was convince the American leadership that an invasion of Cuba would be very costly and therefore that it shouldn't happen. That there should be another another solution, and that's why, in in one of Tony's uh, slides, in the speech of which Fidel gave a a title by Journal Oi, said, "The blockade we will uh, resist, the invasion we will prevail. Venceremos," Mm -hmm. because that's what he was trying to do all the time, and I think this is something. that uh, that he did it and of course the emphasis on historians have been in his what can be considered more irresponsible attitudes. Nothing has been said about all the attempts that Cuba made to reach a diplomatic or some kind of arrangement with the United States in order to avoid that scenario. And that happened in 1959 1959 when Fidel Castro visited the United States and he tried to explain to the American public opinion that the Cuban Revolution didn't represent a threat for the United States. And to the contrary, he mentioned that Cuba wanted U.S. investments and tourists, that there was no problem with that. But, and there is something that I think can never be sufficiently emphasized. In those years, and even today, the relentlessness of American hostility towards Cuba has been incredible. I mean, in those periods, in the, those years, I remember very well those years, those years where we knew that they, were, that they were mobilizing forces constantly under the threat of invasion, that there were plots to kill Fidel Castro, that the CIA unleashed all its resources to get rid of the Cuban Revolution. So it was only normal that the reaction in Cuba was so strong. So I want to emphasize basically this problem. What Cuba was trying to do is deter an invasion of Cuba, even during the Bay of Pigs invasion. Fidel insisted we have to defeat the invasion in less than 72 hours. Because if we don't re- defeat it in 72 hours, the possibility of an American invasion of Cuba will increase. And he was right. He was right on that. Uh, another thing that I would like to... So, so I, I think that the best definition that we can make about the missile crisis, it, that was an asymmetrical conflict between Cuba and the United States in a Cold War context. Because there was a Cold War context. Cuba appealed to the Soviet Union. But that was not what Cuba was trying. Sometimes it is forgotten that in 1959, 1960, when Cuba needed weapons, the first time that Cuba sent a military delegation to buy weapons, they sent it to Western Europe, not to Eastern Europe. They went to Belgium, to France, and of course, there was the famous incident of the Belgian, uh, the French ship with Belgian weapons that exploded in Havana Harbor in 1960 and that gives you an idea of how difficult it is. There is the famous phrase of Alan Dulles to the British Ambassador. I don't know if he's uh, related to you because it's, his name is CAPTCHA, I think, at the time, the, in, in, in the U.S. And, and when CAPTCHA is trying to, Ambassador CAPTCHA, is trying to, to tell um, Alan Dulles, listen, we are going to sell planes to Cuba because if they, if we don't sell planes to Cuba, they're going to buy from the Soviet Union. And Alan Duren says, that's exactly what we want. <laughs> so we can demonstrate that uh, they are a threat. So, so this is the, the kind of context that, that was happening. Uh, I don't want, to, I don't want to, to finish what I wanted to say uh, without referring to the so-called Armageddon letters, the letters that Fidel Castro sent to Nikita Khrushchev saying if they attack us, if you find out that if we are sure that there is going to be an invasion you better strike, make a nuclear strike first. That has been put most historians and most analysts, well, not all of them, have put that as an irresponsible attitude with by Fidel. But I want to point out two things. Now we know and uh, there, is, there is the, the map that, that, uh, that Hal brought. That port over there, La Isabela. one of the Soviet ships with 100 tactical nuclear weapons entered the harbor at La Isabela. These tactical nuclear weapons, originally Soviet leadership had said that they were going to be in the hands of ground commanders and that ground commanders would have the authority to use it. Now the Grand Commanders in Cuba, most of the Soviet soldiers in Cuba, were ready for a fight. They wanted they they believed very strongly in that they had come to Cuba to help Cuba, and when the Americans started to fly at very low altitude, they were ready to fight. So Fidel was very conscious that the possibility of a nuclear exchange could be unleashed very easily by the wrong act by the United States. The United States was um, considering that, as we know from all these secret tapes that have been revealed, et etc. et cetera. So Fidel says, one, if there is going to be an invasion, don't hesitate. But the funny thing is, I, I, I took a look at what all the American military thinkers of the time were talking, and they were saying, in case of a situation like that, first strike, strike first. That Fidel was not thinking in different terms, what I mean to say, what, what everyone that was thinking about nuclear war at the time was thinking in same terms. That thinking changed, and Fidel changed, because we enter into mutual assured destruction, and then it's, it's a suicide to attack first. But at the time, most of the strategies would say, you attack first because you cannot attack second. If you attack second, you are going to be very damaged. Then uh, the final point that I would like to underline is that the most recent, there was a very interesting article by Michael Dobbs, who wrote a book uh, called One Minute Before Midnight about the missile crisis. Uh, and he points out that the myth created by Dean Ross when he said that the Soviet Union and the United States were eyeball to eyeball and someone blinked, which was, was the, the myth at the time. He underlines that that was not true, that both Kennedy and Khrushchev had been um, scaling, scaling down and that even Kennedy was considering returning Cuba to Guantanamo if, and there is evidence of that, there is evidence that Kennedy would have been uh, ready to give up Guantanamo uh, in order to avoid a nuclear war. But, of course, the, the myth that has been created that Kennedy was strong all the time and Khrushchev was the one that backed away. I'm going to leave it there because Piers has called me attention that I don't have any more time. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, and thank you to all three speakers for being very disciplined. So we have a, a good half hour left for discussion uh, and an opportunity to put questions. Can I start the ball rolling by putting a question, which in a sense all three of you could contribute to answering? Although, sort of, I'll let you sort of arrange between yourselves who, who tries and answers it first. You've be- the three of you together have put together an extremely persuasive analysis of why Cuba turned to the extent that it did to the Soviet bloc for both economic and military reasons and it turned as for a market for its sugar, turned as a supply of weapons, etc. You've also, I think, evoked very vividly a time when the revolution felt that it was under daily threat or monthly threat from U.S. Uh, invasion. And again, and uh, Howell in particular painted this picture of a nation that is mobilized uh, in its own defense uh, to a remarkable degree. All of that is very logical. It doesn't, however, have to lead to the type of weapons that the Cubans accept in the October crisis. Uh, To accept Soviet troops is logical possibly in the context of the strategic thinking of the era that uh, Professor al Zugarai has just underlined, it makes sense to accept tactical nuclear weapons, but to accept intermediate range nuclear weapons that are not any use against an invasion force on the way to Cuba, but instead would hit mainland United States, is surely a rather different tactical response. And I'd like some reflection on what the Cubans thought they were doing in accepting that type of weapon. Did they know what they were taking? Did they think through what they were taking? And did they understand the implications and the likely response of accepting weapons of that sort?
3: Okay. Um, Well, Fidel has uh, explained this in, in a in a speech that came to light recently because it was considered a secret speech at a a Central Committee uh, party meeting in 1968. His reasoning was the following. If the Soviet Union is ready uh, to help Cuba and to run the risk of a nuclear war with Cuba, of course, I, I, I am starting from the point of view that everyone knows, I don't know, maybe I should have started there, that the proposal to put the missiles in Cuba was a Soviet proposal. It was the other, not the other way around. So Fidel says that his reasoning was that if the Soviet Union was ready to do that, then Cuba should be in, in a concept of internationalist cooperation to be ready to run the risk of being the target of nuclear war if that reinforced the socialist countries. Um, I think... I think the reasoning is logical. You don't find much flaws in that reasoning, but of course he learned the lesson in a very hard way, which was that the Soviet Union was not going to go to war, to a nuclear war with Cuba, uh, which which opens a whole uh, a whole new set of questions about why did Khrushchev um, uh, did that. I like very much the theory of Professor Jonathan Haslam, who has suggested that it was because the Soviet military were demanding more money to build bigger uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles and that by giving them uh, intermediate range and medium range ballistic missiles in Cuba, he was balancing the forces, which was one of the issues. Remember that at the time, there was supposed to be a missile gap. And as a matter of fact, uh, President Kennedy ran in the elections of 1960 on the basis of the missile gap, but the missile gap was exactly the other way around. Uh, it was against the Soviet Union, no for the Soviet Union. I think Fidel didn't know that. He has said he didn't know, but he sensed that in a way he was reciprocating the gesture of the Soviet Union and even what, what what his biography has been, I think it, it is the right way to understand how he accepted that, but he didn't. Obviously, he didn't know uh, all the details of this display, and he had, he had in the end to accept Nikita Khrushchev's explanation that the these weapons could be introduced in Cuba uh, secretly, which he suspected that couldn't be done, and he even demanded to the uh, to uh, Premier Khrushchev that the treaty that would be that would serve as the legal basis for the deployment be announced publicly because he, there he was better prepared to understand that the legality of the issue was very important, which by the way what was what Kennedy used. Kennedy could not complain about missiles in Cuba because the United States had missiles in Turkey and, and Italy. And uh, What he could complain is what he did complain about. You have lied to me about the missile.
1: I actually don't
2: have much to add to that. So. No? I just think it's, it's worth underscoring that, uh, that nobody knew, uh, that Fidel didn't know, and that the United States uh, Intelligence Services hint at it, but I don't think many people uh, knew. In 1945, remember, at Hiroshima, Stalin says, this is nothing but bigger artillery. You have to tell the other guy that uh, it matters what you have, or he's not going to be deterred. And the Soviet Union might or might not have been a third world country with rockets in 1989, but it certainly was in 62 and it didn't have many weapons, uh, many rockets uh, in the first place. Uh, I think a recent study, which I find quite convincing, talks of 17 to 1 There was no balance of terror in 1962. The Soviet Union felt terrified. That's not a balance of of terror, although public opinion, of course, I think in the United States was certainly terrified during the, the, uh, the, the crisis. I think what we're talking about is deterrence. Cuba was interested in weapons that would actually deter, whereas tactical nuclear weapons offered no likelihood of deterrence of any significance real nuclear weapons that could strike the United States might actually deter those attacks and these uh, constant crises.
0: Okay, thank, thank you. Um, yes, question here in the, in the front. Can you please wait for the microphone before,
4: before starting your question? Uh, Misha Klemesh, uh, thank you very much for an interesting lecture. I want to ask a, a bit of a pointed, uh, maybe slightly polemical question. Um, uh, Fidel Castro obviously had this sort of um, anti-imperialist ideology and Cuban troops were sent to Angola, um, I think, uh, during the Civil War there, um, Ogaden. I think, the Ethiopia, Somalia thing. Um, And I think you mentioned Czechoslovakia gave weapons um, to uh, Cuba and then the Soviets came in later on. Uh, My grandpa was one of those people um, and I'm the son of Soviet refugees um, who then had to come here. And we know that the, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 was a real sort of clincher because that was the last sort of internal reform communists who really believed in it, trying to reform the system, then afterwards it was dead. And then even Mao you know, was so shocked by what Brezhnev did, you know, the, the you know, party line that Mao then thought, you know, the Soviet Union was the main threat to security, so it was a big strategic thing. So how did um, Fidel Castro, the great um, anti-imperialist um, who was promoting this ideology, how did he square that with the... Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 68 and various um, other adventures and Czechoslovakia I think was quite gave gave quite a lot of support and weapons to uh, 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 Cuba Um, and also just to to, to put in the point a little bit more you did I think mention in 1898 that uh, what was it that Spain in America uh, basically decided um, Cuba's fate without any um, uh, representation there and in Munich in 38 Czechoslovakia, a small country, also had the same thing um, when Deleuze Chamberlain and uh, whatever decided Czechoslovakia's fate. So so, uh, how does Fidel Castro square that legacy? Cheers.
1: I think actually he squares it fairly easily um, because it's always presented in the literature as the the debt you need to pay to the Soviet Union to dig you out of the economic crisis that was developing. Namely, this this is what you do to buy their support. There may be an element of that in there. But it's much more significant, I think, to think where Cuba was in 68. 68 is really quite important because that independent action from 62 onwards becomes even more pronounced up to 1968. In 1968, Cuba was not talking to Communist parties of Latin America. It was had very poor relations with the Soviet Union, economic relations and military relations, but beyond that not a lot and cuba 's argument then was that they were the front line of the Cold War. They were fighting against the United States. United, the Soviet Union had had the opportunity and didn 't not you know, without thinking about what might well have happened, but Cuba was actually the front line. Now, One way of looking at what was happening in Czechoslovakia was actually that if they were divided the world was divided between imperialism and anti imperialism. Well, the moment there was a threat that the Czechoslovakia would move, remove itself from the Warsaw Pact, that was actually weakening the front. And so the presentation, that if you thought the Soviet Union was not doing the right thing, what on earth did you think Dubček was doing? In other words, if you saw the world as a world of revolution, and a world of revolution against imperialism, then there's no way in which, however much you might sympathise with what Dubček was doing, you would actually think that that was the right direction. So I think from that point of view, it was absolutely logical that he would say, actually, I don't see a problem. Of course, the other side to it is he actually said afterwards as well, we welcome this brotherly support and we hope you'll do it for us one day. Namely, you didn't when you had the chance.
3: Three points to add to what uh, Tony has said. One, Um, he says it in his speech, he says, he mentions that. He says, I know that what I am saying gives the imperialists the possibility of arguing the same thing with respect to Cuba and that I am saying something that undermines Cuba's position against uh, non-intervention, Cuba's position on non-intervention in the internal affairs. But he said, we have no other choice. And I think he points, also points out in the speech uh, where he supported that. By the way, the speech is a criticism of the Soviet Union of a level that, I, that probably uh, was very seldom seen. I, I was a diplomat at the time in Bulgaria and I remember <laughs> the Bulgarian Director for, North Amer- for Latin American Affairs thanking me about Cuba's support and when I asked him what do you think about Fidel Castro's speech he said, well, he has made many criticisms of the Soviet Union. And I said to him, well, but these are, uh, these are correct criticisms of what the Soviet Union has been doing. And he said, yes, but the Soviet Union makes small mistakes, not big mistakes. <laughs> Bulgaria was famous for being very, very
5: pro-Soviet.
3: So, so it felt like, you know, it's like, yes, these guys are supporting us, but they are criticizing us. And the final factor is Vietnam. Uh, at that time, at that moment in time, uh, the United States was expanding the war in Vietnam, even attacking Hanoi. And, and Fidel was very worried about that. What would happen if that was, was the attitude that, uh, that the United States took with Cuba? We needed the support of the Soviet Union. Okay.
2: Um, just uh, very, very quickly, I think it's, it's worth remembering that everything looks bad from Havana's perspective at that time. Uh, China, from the armed forces' perspective, can't help. We've asked them for seven or eight years. They've given a tiny bit. The Sino-Soviet rift is in full swing. Uh, euro is on the march. Uh, it's really looking bad for Cuba, and I think this is a, a gesture of some desperation. Um, yes, uh, g-
0: gentlemen in the tie and the left there. Um, I was just quite interested that you just mentioned Vietnam and and Southeast Asia, and I was just wondering if the American view, putting it in the wider Cold War context, the American view towards Cuba was very similar to its view towards Vietnam, seeing it as a communist front against, but actually misunderstanding perhaps the nationalist undertones that you've been drawing
3: out this uh, this evening. I think basically because the, 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 the United States formulated its policy towards Cuba on this issue of communism. But what actually the United States did not like, and and that was very evident from 1959 for, from June 1959 more or less, was the nationalistic character of the Cuban Revolution. The fact that that Cuba, a country that had been completely controlled by the United States in the last 57 years, or more, was suddenly becoming independent. And that the example that that meant for the rest of uh, Latin America. And and it's very clear. It, just two bits of information that are interesting. When Eisenhower approved what later turned out to be the Bay of Peaks plan, it, if you look at the Foreign Relations of the United States, documents published by the State Department. In that meeting, Livingstone Merchant, who was at the time the number three in the State Department, he describes, he makes an introduction of how to describe how they reached to that moment, and he says, in June 1959, we reached the conclusion that we cannot achieve our aims in Latin America, our objectives in Latin America, with Fidel Castro in power in Cuba. June 1959. So the decision to 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 do away Fidel with Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution precedes the first precedes any contact with the Soviet Union. The first official contact between the Soviet Union and Cuba took place in October nineteen fifty nine when Alexander Alexeyev, who was a KGB agent, but actually the, later became the ambassador to Cuba, uh, came to Havana october nineteen fifty-nine. I have searched the American documents, and there is no evidence that the American intelligence or the State Department or anyone learned about that visit. That visit became public when Mikoyan came to Cuba in February 1960. But in October, no. In October, they didn't know that there there was and, and that and the meeting with between Fidel Castro and and Alexander Alexeyev, as retold by people who were present, didn't have any major significance. The only the only. The thing that came out of that meeting is that Alexeyev proposed that the Soviet trade exhibition that was visiting many countries in Latin America would come to Cuba. And Fidel said yes, which was, was nothing. Ambassador Monza, the, the American ambassador in Cuba, was telling the State Department, this is not a big deal. And, and, and the and the establishment of trade relations between Cuba and, and, and the Soviet Union, because many countries in Latin America were doing exactly that in 1959.
2: Yes, just uh, one point on Vietnam. It's interesting to me that in the Sovietization program for the armed forces that's established in 70, 71, 72, and carries on until 80, um, the model for doing things is Soviet. The doing of it uh, as an inspiration is Vietnamese, across the board. It's uh, Japs' works that are read with passion in the, in the military colleges and in, and in the staff uh, schools. It's the army of, one, uh, army of the people, war of the people. That's what people are, are looking at. And even today, interesting, through all the ups and downs of the Chinese relationship and the, and the Soviet and then Russian relationship, it's Vietnamese um, uh, instructors who are in the uh, camps in Pinar del Rio. There are no Russian instructors and no Chinese instructors. Professor Wester
5: It's wonderful to see three old friends to come here and discuss the consequences of the Cuban Missile Crisis with regard to the region and with regard to Cuba. I really applaud all three of you for taking that perspective to our students here at LSE. It's wonderful. I have a question just following up on that. It's mainly for Carlos, but I think Tony and Hal may want to chip in on it as well. And it is about the consequences for Cuban foreign policy in the wake of the crisis. I mean, what happens after the crisis is over and the summing up of the effects of the crisis for Cuba in Havana. This is something I've always been fascinated by. And it's clear from what all three of you have been saying that clearly there is a challenge here in terms of the Cuban relationship with the Soviet Union. It doesn't go completely belly up, but it's the next thing to it. Fidel is furious, and he has reason to be furious. I mean, let's face it, in terms of how this conflict wraps up. But he's also facing a situation in which Cuba could end up being completely isolated. You know, the Americans are not going to take any step, any real step down in terms of its animosity towards uh, Cuba. Uh, The Chinese, you know, there's already been a falling out on ideological grounds, and the Soviets are stepping back. I was wondering, how does all of this look from Havana? And is this the starting point for a reorientation of Cuba foreign policy, which later on brings Cuba into Africa, which opens up new fronts, as seen from Fidel and Raul's side, in the confrontation with imperialism? You simply have to revamp your foreign policy in order to avoid isolation. Uh, Thank you. uh, uh,
3: I, I think you are right on the dot. What happened after that was first, well, first, Fidel recognizes the opportunity and makes two visits to the Soviet Union in 63 and 64 and gets very good economic deals. That's, so, so, that's one point. That's that's one, that's that's one consequence. But at the same time, he has reached the conclusion that on military, on security, there's no deal to be made, that he has in a way, to guarantee Cuba's independence and Cubans' protection uh, in a different way. And that's when Cuban foreign policy evolves towards what one might call the tri-continental strategy. And, and you have described in your book about the global uh, Cold War some of the aspects of that strategy. Remember, you pointed out that. Che Guevara goes to China and the, the visit, by the way, in the latest thing that, uh, that uh, Christian Osterman and, and James Herzberg are publishing, in, it came out yesterday. Christian sent me the new big book on, on different things. There are some material on the, on the visits to China. So obviously Cuba has to opt for another strategy. What is the strategy? I think the strategy is, uh, on security terms, is Che a strategy. Create two, three Vietnams. If you are are going to make life difficult for me, I am going to go all over the world making life difficult for you. And and of course, the context was very favorable because Africa was, 1960 was the year of Africa in the UN, and there was this push for decolonization in Africa. And and we were riding, in that sense, Cuba was riding the wave of the time. The time was liberating the African countries, in some cases through national liberation movements. So I think that was right. And of course in Latin America there was all this Che Guevara project. Uh, he had sent his guys to Argentina. They were killed in Argentina, but but the program of expanding revolution in Latin America uh, was going on even theoretically it was at the time when Regis Debray wrote his famous book about the the guerrilla focus and, and 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 that famous phrase of Fidel, let's make the Andes the Sierra Maestra of of the Americas. I think that was the that of course lasted for very few years because Che Guevara, that's another point about this 68, Che Guevara was murdered in Bolivia in in 67 so by 68 Cuba that strategy was not obviously rendering the results that the Cuban leadership expected.
1: Yeah, What I would add to that actually is that I, I wouldn't ever underestimate if that's what I mean wouldn't exaggerate the importance of the undertaking not to invade because I think that certainty means that for a while they've got the freedom to do not quite what they want but they've got the Soviet Union on the back foot quite clearly and the Soviet Union cannot afford to let Cuba drop it really can't it's credibility in the third world depends on facing up to it one of the, one of the things that's really interesting in the conflict with the Chinese yeah that's right, because, if, because the whole tricontinental conference in 66 is to, to defeat the Chinese over the third world. So I think there's a moment when they can use the Soviet Union to their advantage. Fidel's always been very, very good at making a virtue out of necessity. <laughs> and therefore, one of the things he does is we're on our own, but that's good. And it's good for domestic consumption, because that mo- sense of mobilization just continues. Because you can't trust the Soviet Union, you can't trust the United States it's us. And that keeps that level going. Eventually it can't be sustained. Eventually in the 70s it has to just calm down a bit longer. But I think for a while that isolation actually is a plus rather than a negative.
3: But but I would add that also the Vietnam War helped because uh, my view at the time and I haven't changed it very much was that it was not only the promise of not invading it was that The United States shifted towards Vietnam, even most of the resources. You can find out that many of the CIA resources that that were dedicated to Cuba were reoriented towards Vietnam, and many of the CIA guys who were working against Cuba turned out in Southeast Asia.
2: Just one little practical point, of course, I find it interesting that in the American engagements they speak of, we will make every effort to ensure that no other Latin American country invades Cuba which, given Cuban history, particularly the year before, could leave the odd doubt in uh, a variety of military commanders and no doubt Fidel's mind. Uh, yes, uh, the
0: gentleman in the back was the Czech shirt.
6: Um, just a quick question. Thank you very, very much for some really provoking and informative um, views. I um, do have an acquaintance who was... Um, born just after the death of an American sympathizer with the Cuban Revolution and uh, is actually named after this person. Um, the only problem is that, that that person's name is Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, my question is about the relationship. I w- was going to be at the time of the, the crisis, but it, I think it's also leading into how it went later from... Uh, the panel's comments. What was the relationship between the Soviet military personnel and the professional armed forces of Cuba and the militia at the time, including down to the level of almost social and trust levels, and how did these relationships change or not change in the the following years? You you have implied they changed quite dramatically um, after Vietnam really got going. Thank you.
2: Well, it's the nature of the beast, I suppose, that, um, that they were going to sour to some degree at, at the more, more the strategic level. I think one of the things that can surprise us sometimes uh, is that uh, Cuban-Soviet military relations on the ground were almost always very good. Even in Africa, they were uh, good When such cooperation as there, there was. Uh, uh, Soviet personnel and Cuban personnel uh, got along very well normally. Uh, there was the usual thing of a more developed country and a um, larger force, etc., and certainly a number of the things they suggested would remind you a bit more of Afghan-U.S. relations now. The Soviets wanted the Cubans to, to develop a, a number of Army Corps doctrine uh, Statements. Well, since Cuba would never have an army corps, it seemed a little bit over the top. But at the personal level, they tended to be quite good. The the, the difficulty is that in in the north, we've tended uh, to suggest that that might pass on to the uh, strategic level. And it didn't. Cubans made their own decisions for their own reasons, and they might be influenced by where the socialist camp was or or Soviet preferences. Uh, But they had a very specific strategic situation in the front line, and a front line that was very... Very dangerous, full of previous interventions, some of them very recent or about to occur as in the Dominican Republic. And Cuban, uh, Cuba had its own strategies for how to, get, how, to, how to manage this extremely difficult situation of the greatest powers in the history of the world, 150 miles uh, away, uh, determined to uh, defeat not only your political program, but your social and economic program. So they were concentrated. <laughs> Their minds were extremely concentrated on, on the question of defense. The Soviets helped, but the Soviets didn't, couldn't dictate. We're talking about Fidel Castro, after all.
3: Let, let me add just a little. Remember how most of the Soviet specialists that went to Cuba were Hispano Soviets <laughs> uh, people who had been members of the Communist Party of Spain, who had left Spain after the Civil War, had joined the Soviet Armed Forces had fought during the Soviet, during the Second World War on the side of the Soviets and one of these guys, I remember one that Raul mentions very much, Angelito. Uh, all these guys came to Cuba and they served as a bridge between the um, the Cuban commanders and the uh, Soviet commanders and, and, and had made it a very strong link, personal link, I would say, which plus it was reinforced at the level of people like Khrushchev and Mikoyan. I had this conversation with with Sergo Mikoyan many years ago when he has just, his memoirs have been, the papers of Anastas Mikoyan have been published and and at a conference in Washington. and, and, And Sergo said, the problem is that my father and Khrushchev, so fidel as the young revolutionary that they had been and they had this profound sympathy so it was a mixture, as always in policy, it was a mixture of, yes, the interest of the big power, the ideological interest, but it was also a question of, of personalities, of, of the personality. There was a very good connection between the Soviet commanders on the ground. There is still, in Cuba, a monument with a flame for the Soviet internationalist soldier, remembering There are the tombs of many Soviet internationalist specialists who were in Cuba. And they, every year on the day of, these, of the Russian armed forces, Raul Castro and the leadership of the Cuban armed force go to pay homage to these
2: uh, Soviets who were killed in Cuba. Just one last point, if I may. It's about training the trainers, though. They, I mean, Cubans are trained in the Soviet Union or in Cuba to go off and they, as senior NCOs or officers, teach the troops. Soviets don't have direct access to the troops.
0: Okay, uh, there's lots of hands and uh, I can only... We've only got time for one last question. Perhaps the lady over there.
6: It's you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes.
7: <laughs> um, I'm not an expert, but um, 50 years on, it looks like there's very strong parallels between um, what, what happened in Cuba and what's happening in, in places like Iran, Iraq um, and Korea and very strong echoes of the Cold War and the Cold War rhetoric. It seems like a very crude sort of diplomatic process that seems to go on, even though I know there's a lot of detail that goes on in the background. Can you envisage a time in the future when um, America and Russia actually come to some way of relating to each other and smaller nations in the world where they actually help smaller nations to grow up and be independent as opposed to treating them like naughty so little Children all the time and expecting to rebel like teenagers, which seems to be the only way that smaller nations seem to be able to um, assert their influence in the world.
0: Are there any optimists on the
2: panel?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have to say I know bugger all about relations between the United States and Russia at the moment. So, um, except when it comes to Cuba, I happen to know that Russia sees an opportunity of reviving something of the relationship, rescuing perhaps the bases and things like that but that often is a leverage to force the United States into negotiations for something. That's the limit of my knowledge on that I'm afraid.
0: Okay, well it's eight o'clock so I think it's time to bring conclusions to a, to a close. Um, I think we should give a good LSE thank you to our speakers.